Welcome to episode two. You're back with Naima and Lila. We're taking a real left turn this week. We're going hard in the other direction. Mm-hmm. Hard science. We're looking at the DSM. Five. Um, DSM five, exactly. What does the DSM stand for, you ask? It is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. So I've um, done some digging on the American Psychiatric Association's website, um, and the DSM first came out in 1952. They say that it standardizes diagnoses by psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers, nurses, and other health and mental health professionals, but it also informs research, public health policy, education, reimbursement systems, and forensic science. I'm very curious about the last two. Mm -hmm. And so this DSM that we're talking about today, DSM-5, is going to be the first full revision since 1994. So first of all, I find that a little bit shocking that like it's been 25 years of people like... Well, DSM-5 came out in what, 2013? So it's... Like a twenty, mm. basically twenty year period between twenty year period of yeah. of diagnosing from from an old version. I don't mm-hmm. know. So yeah, they started working on this DSM five in nineteen ninety nine, and the effort represented sixteen countries, which I think is interesting. And then they talked about how in this issue they made an effort to improve diagnosis and care of people of all backgrounds. So they're like. I think this is really interesting. They talk about how, like, cultural concepts of distress are different um, mm. and how based on, they say, a patient's culture, race, ethnicity, religion, or geographical origin, different disorders might look differently. So they say uncontrollable crying and headaches are symptoms of panic attacks in some cultures, while difficulty breathing may be the primary symptom in other cultures. So I thought that was really, really interesting. And That's in terms of, like a context um for you know is this like used by a couple of therapists or is it all over the world the dsm claims that it influences the care that millions of people of all ages receive for mental health issues so all over the world it's basically considered like the metric by which professionals in the united states assess mental health right for the most part mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but one of the things that they say is the dsm it's only for diagnosis and not for treatment. Mm. It doesn't propose any treatment. So even though I'm the one quote unquote bringing the topic, that is kind of one of the things that I can't decide if that's good or bad. Because part of me is like, how do you divorce diagnosis from treatment so completely? And isn't that dangerous? But also maybe treatments evolve and get more humane. So then maybe it's good to have diagnosis and treatment separated and I and I don't know how I feel about that yeah that yeah that makes sense I mean yeah if you're only updating the DSM the diagnostic manual once every 20 years you would have to imagine that treatment options advance at a much rapider rapider mm-hmm. rapid more rate. rapid rate <laughs> something has you're happened diagnosing you to our words today I don't wow. know why are we I think maybe we're nervous about this topic I think this topic maybe is it's yeah, getting in our heads. I think I think everybody kind of has a secret fear deep inside that like they might be crazy. No, oh or is that just saying? No, no, no. I fully. Me? I'm laughing because I hundo p agree with you. I my deepest fear is that everyone around me is like she has a personality disorder. Let's not tell her. I was like, yeah. Ugh. 
I think uh, that's the yeah. thing is like we're so put in boxes as a society that it's like, oh, you cry a lot. Hmm. You must be sad or depressed or something versus yeah. like there is a range of emotions. And yeah, you know. I, I, I think also like disclaimer that like especially with this topic being something that is more like scientific we want to be upfront that like we are not experts we will be bringing in someone who knows more than us of course as we do every week but um we don't want to we don't want to appear to be insensitive about like this topic by poking holes in something that could be really legitimate and important we're not trying to be like and even (laughs) life-saving yeah exactly we want to we want to say that we both come from a perspective of people who are very pro mental health Mm-hmm. Um, pro seeking help in that way, pro medication should you need it. Like we're not trying to be like wholly skeptical on this topic, but the mm-hmm. DSM is in fact a controversial framework for understanding mental health, and it's like like you said, anytime you break anything down into discrete boxes, it's like some nuance gets lost, and there there are a lot of there are a lot of interesting questions per your earlier point about like how do these labels get determined and what research gets done and who does it get done on and who's funding that research and what is mm-hmm. the, you know, like I, I read something too and I, again, we'll have to ask our expert more about how the DSM diagnostics also influence like the pay scale for certain types of treatment and certain, you yes, know, like. so that's what that means when they say reimbursement fees and forensic yeah. science. It's like there are political, social, economic ramifications. Like for here's so here's an example from my personal life. Again, don't quote me on this in the whole world, but I will say it has been said to me. It was like, I decided like two years ago, I was like, you know what? I'd love to talk to a therapist. I've never really done that in my life. And I feel like it could be a great way to just talk to someone objective for perspective. And uh, when it comes to, yeah, to the reimbursement structure for, for billing, she told me, she was like, yeah, if you want to submit these claims to your insurance to get reimbursement, I have to give you a diagnosis and I have to give you a diagnostic code and that's what goes on the bills. And that's how they can consider it to be actual like treatment that you need. And she was like, oh, it's kind of fun. We can do that. And I, I don't even, you know, know if we ended up getting around to that. But that idea to me is so interesting of like, okay, so this could be a really like helpful, interesting interesting is such a boring word. This could be a really helpful way for you to receive like care, but if I can't label you a certain way, they won't consider it legitimate. And how does that work with HIPAA laws, HIPAA privacy laws? That means your insurance knows your if you have a mental quote-unquote mental disorder, then your insurance company knows? That's another question that I would love to ask our expert because I, I don't know and I'm very fascinated by that. Like, yeah, could mental diagnoses be considered pre-existing conditions for your insurance going forward? And I think my main, as the as the head of the antithesis this week, my main question is about just like pathologizing, you know? Like the human mm-hmm. experience is complicated. We all go through a lot. Does it help to pathologize everything? And again, I will say, of course, I'm sort of speaking from a place of like trying to do the antithesis. I do think it's Mm -hmm. important to have some of these diagnoses. I know a lot of people that have benefited greatly from being told, you know, hey, you have anxiety or you suffer from depression or obsessive compulsive disorder. And that can be such a relief to be like, oh, Mm -hmm. okay, that's what this This is. This is what that is. Mm -hmm. And now I can address it and I don't feel crazy because I understand that there's actually something going on and you can give me either medication or talk therapy or something that's going to, tools that are going to help me to manage this. I think that's 
really important and powerful. But, but I then also the think the flip side is misdiagnosing, yeah. and all of a sudden, yes, misdiagnoses happen a lot. Um, a lot of symptoms apply to like multiple things. I've heard, I've read a lot about like, for example, like adult women with ADHD. Often, the the manual, the the understanding of it has been framed around men and boys. So women go mm-hmm. undiagnosed for a really long time, and they often Same get diagnosed and autism. treated. Yep. Same thing with autism and they get treated mm-hmm. for something else and you go, they say, oh, you're depressed and you get medicated for something else. It's not really necessarily treating the, the proper problem. But the other thing I was going to say is just sociologically, like the more you pathologize individuals, the less you are looking at a larger structure. Like what is the society doing that is creating this mass anxiety, for example, if mm-hmm. we go, oh, you, you have something a little bit wrong with your brain. So we're going to treat you. We're not going like, what the fuck is happening in the macro that is creating this issue where now suddenly we have such high rates of anxiety. Sometimes I, I worry about that. And I think like, yeah, rates inflate also when you have more awareness. So if now we understand something better, of course, the numbers are going to go up because we're suddenly able to identify it. That makes sense, mm-hmm. too. You know, you know, you think about generational trauma. That's something that I've um, talked to a lot about with a f- friend of mine who studies that and you realize like so much of that stuff gets carried down and that's also like well maybe if somebody you know maybe if the world had been different and a lot of the trauma of being in world war ii of knowing famine of being afraid of bombs maybe trauma of the cold war of having to run drills and hide under desks and yeah. that kind of like existential dread and and today, you know, the trauma of the virus, like if that stuff isn't dealt with, it's just going to keep piling on and going yeah. through and through. And I think also for me, one of the things I would love to talk about with our expert, Bria, is you were saying like pathologizing. And I'm thinking also about compartmentalization, where yeah. I think we're not just like brains floating in a tank. Like if you tried to diagnose me while I was on my period, you'd be like, she's got issues you know (laughs) that brings up another question for me that I would love to know is what kind of margin does the DSM allow for normal like what you know is that a narrow or a wide margin because I have a I have a big problem with that word normal you know what I mean like when people say like oh like a normal body and I'm like I don't, normal, what does that mean? Like, maybe this person is missing an arm, but they're still fucking normal. You know what I mean? Like, the word normal infuriates me. Yeah. So I, I'm curious about, about what that margin is like. I think that's a great point we should have brought up earlier. Like, yeah, having all of these diagnoses can be super helpful, but we need to simultaneously have, like, a cultural conversation about how we see normalcy so that just Mm -hmm. because you check one of these boxes doesn't mean suddenly there's something wrong with you Mm -hmm. well thank goodness we have bria coming on thank god we can't wait to ask her all of these questions so stay tuned welcome to our expert this week want to introduce yourself I do, yeah. Um, my name is Bria Adamora Godley, and at the moment, I am a fourth-year medical student. I don't know what else is relevant. I'm a writer. I write things. <laughs> I'm working on a book right now. 
Oh, tell us everything about the book. Well, the book is, I think, relevant to this podcast, right? It's like, it's a memoir only based on my time in medical school. Mm-hmm. And uh, since I am training to be a psychiatrist, it's about my own experiences with mental illness, you know, like every, like any upper middle class millennial, I have anxiety and depression. I don't Mm. know how people can escape that. (laughs) Um, And then in medical school, I was diagnosed with ADHD, um, which was such a shock to me because I had, I was like, what do you mean? I feel like I'm good at paying attention because I have Mm. good grades, but that's actually, I have good grades in spite of not being able to uh, pay attention and in medical school I don't have good grades um mm. so and it's also like that's kind of late in your like scholastic career oh too. extremely extremely late yeah like I was telling Lila that my brother was diagnosed I think when he was around eight years old um and I was diagnosed at I was almost 25 and that's interesting do you you didn't find that like having someone close to you who had the same diagnosis as you made you be like oh here's some signs Not, not at all. Well, I also think that like, there's a stereotype for ADHD that it shows up in boys and they're like hyperactive and running around and they're misbehaving. And even the way girls misbehave, I feel like is different. Like I wasn't like punching people (laughs) and running around a classroom. I was like, Mm. uh, you know, the, the usual lying, stealing, sneaking around, that kind of thing. It's, it's all like much more covert and, and is also, it more sort of self-focused? Like, I feel like women kind of sublimate in this way sometimes, whereas, like, boys act out. Are more, like, externalizing. Yeah, exactly. And, like, I think it is true that women tend to have the inattentive form of ADHD. So there's, like, the hyperactive where you're, like, running around, and then there's the inattentive where you're just not paying attention, and then there's, like, a mixed version. And... Growing up, I was always, like, compared to my brother, and it was, like, two opposite ends of the spectrum where, like, my brother was, like, the more of, like, the black sheep of the family, like, really smart but doesn't apply himself. And I was always, like, very, very hardworking, extremely Mm -hmm. organized. I later learned as a way to compensate for the fact that I had ADHD. So I, like... From the moment it was suggested to me that from by my psychiatrist to when I was actually diagnosed, I think almost an entire year elapsed. And she didn't believe that I had it either. She was like, you have something that's like <laughs> something that we're not treating that needs to be treated. I don't know what it is. Like, I don't know if your anxiety is ramping up. I don't know if you like, she suggested that I might have bipolar disorder, which was really scary mm. just because I was like, going through periods of time where I was like really really hyper and like I don't know it never actually fit because I am bipolar is characterized by these episodes of mania where you're sleeping Mm -hmm. much less than usual and I need like 12 hours of sleep every night and that never Mm -hmm. changes so it was like (laughs) it was I was never gonna have a diagnosis but she was like there's something something off about you um that's how she put it no, no, no. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was going to say that. Well, that's one of the questions we had is about this word normal. And um, mm. I think that like on the one hand for on a personal level, if, if you're, you're like, yeah, that is my normal. So why would I identify that as strange? That's all mm. I've ever known. And then on a group level, we're wondering 
maybe, I don't know if this is a good time for this segue or not, but what does having all these different diagnoses do to a concept of normalcy? And like you made a comment a moment ago about uh, like any millennial, you know, and I do think there's like this rampant instances of anxiety and depression, which, so you look at that trend and you go, okay, so there's something happening on a macro level that isn't just about the pathology of an individual per se. So are we, are, is labeling these things expanding our idea of normal or is it making everyone feel outside of normal or like, is there a stratification within DSM diagnoses that fall into like degrees of normalcy? Do you know what I'm trying to ask? I'm not sure if I'm... We're asking a bunch of different things. Yeah, as always, I'm asking 12 questions at once. (laughs) No, I love that because I can kind of like pick and choose the things that Mm. I actually have an answer to. Um, I mean, it is an extremely complicated question and something that I've thought about a lot. Um, Not to complicate (laughs) the question even further. (laughs) We crave complexity. (laughs) But I was... um, (laughs) So I, it's so difficult. I think that I have identified with the depression diagnosis for a very long time, although it has been, it's difficult for me to pinpoint exactly when it happened. Like there wasn't, I think some people will have like a depressive episode um, incited by some traumatic event, for example, and then they will spend weeks or months in this totally different state of being but it was never really like that for me which is speaking of complicated probably also because of the undiagnosed ADHD like that um ability to kind of like cycle between being really into something and really excited and to like back to being really bored and out of it like I think that was sort of masking the depression but um the other interesting thing is like how your personality can interact with your diagnosis. Uh, Naima, as you know, I have a passion for the Enneagram mm-hmm. personality test. That's um, going to be that one next week. I'm so excited. <laughs> That's so that I'm so glad you're talking about that because it's such an underrated personality inventory. I'll just go into my own personality type. Like mm-hmm. the type four is the more introspective, melancholy, I don't know, I, I think someone would say maybe creative personality type. And I remember when my therapist brought it up to me and she called it immediately. She's like, you are a type four based off of something that I said. But I, I remember being like, not offended, but I was just like, oh, so you're telling me that I have the depressive personality type, like in addition to actually having this diagnosis. Um, but I don't, I don't know how it, I can't say how that relates. Um, but that everybody has a different normal, you know, Yeah. That like that some people like, I know, I feel like a good example of this is like people you date where you're like, I was like, I remember dating this one guy and I was like, this guy is never going to be happy. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. And then this other dude I dated who had just been cheated on and gotten out of a long relationship. And I was like, this dude is always happy how is he always happy you know yeah that's i think that's oversimplification but i do think that there yeah what you're saying about how your personality interacts with your diagnosis is something like i've not like i've thought about in passing but not really 
sunk in. But I think it is really important to, like, none of this is in a vacuum. Yeah. Right. It almost creates like a chicken and the egg question to me, though, where I'm like, is my personality interacting with my diagnosis or is this diagnosis not diagnosed, but is shaping this condition shaping my... my personality and vice versa? And like, where do you draw that line between the self and the condition on the self or something? I don't know what yes, that is. That is a great totally. question. You guys are really you just really just jumped into the like the meaty stuff like immediately that that's like sorry. <laughs> I mean no not sorry we're pumped yeah <laughs> yeah that's um I that's something that I'm concerned about as well like I've been I don't know well it's interesting so I've been taking antidepressants for um, four years and so while I feel like I have this introspective more depressive personality type when I feel depressed, it's very different. It's like, um, like food tastes different and yeah, it tastes like nothing actually. Um, and like my energy level just like completely collapses. And when I interact with other people, when I normally would be like with my friends and laughing at a joke, like that, being able to laugh or even react to them in a natural way feels like effort. Like things that were once effortless become like effortful. Um, And I think that that is distinct from, you know, the part of me that likes to like journal and like, I don't know, like who will cry over some like random memory. I I don't know. I'm not like a... I'm I cry all the time. Dramatic, but yeah, yeah, no, no, no. Well, hello, two actresses. We are drama personified. Uh, yeah. There is no such thing as too dramatic on this podcast. <laughs> oh my so god! Funny. I feel so safe. I'm glad. <laughs> I think a lot of people, at least within psychiatry, I've gotten the imp- impression, and I've basically adopted this notion as well that um, the diagnostic manual is only useful insofar as you can use it to treat people's illnesses because otherwise just categorizing people is just like for fun I mean it's like this podcast that you're doing you're like you're just Mm -hmm. doing it to be like oh you're an Aries like Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, exactly and it's like well there's no pill for that does that resonate yeah (laughs) (laughs) how did you know I was an Aries I actually am an Aries she is cool i'm a capricorn which i do me too you're a capricorn oh really i'm I'm a double capricorn (laughs) oh my god let all right tangent 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 alert tangent alert (laughs) sorry i always i was like capricorn is so boring i don't want to be a fucking capricorn now i'm like you know what bring on the sea goat that's what it is (laughs) (laughs) okay wait but i'm confused because in my research, my mm-hmm. very surface level research, the impression I got from the DSM was that it's for diagnosis and not treatment. So how does that work then? Well, yeah, that's a good question. And I have to admit that I didn't do any prior research other than that's my perfect. years of medical school. Prior I mean, to this that counts. I think that counts. Research. Well, enough. you think that it counts, but you would be surprised. Um, <laughs> um, no, so yeah, we diagnose people in order to get them back to a level where they feel like they're able to function. And I think that like the DSM, I, 
I, I would interpret that information, Naima, as being like, this manual will tell me what I have, but it's not going to tell me what to do with it. And like what to do with that information is what you learn in medical school and more so in the psychiatry residency or training program. And have you actually gotten a chance to like look at the actual DSM and how... What no, it actually, tell us everything. Basically, it's just like a list of all of the different disorders categorized by um, like you have your psychotic spectrum disorders. So like schizophrenia, your depressive disorders, your anxiety disorders. Um, Those count as, as what? So these are just like the different like subheadings of like mm-hmm. all the things that could go awry mm-hmm. in your brain. Anxiety disorders for like that's a um, subheading of a type of mental disorder. You have um, like social anxiety is its own disorder. Panic disorder, panic attacks. If you've ever had a panic attack, I know I have. Um, let's Does see. Does like PTSD count as an anxiety disorder, or is that like a? So yeah, they have a separate. They have a separate section for trauma related disorders. Um, it's actually pretty interesting. And this is, and that's what's so cool about psychiatry, I think, um, is that it's very subjective and um, it just takes a really long time to, I don't know, to filter this, to filter everything into its own categories. Because what you're basically observing is aberrant human behavior. And you're like, you first have to figure out what's causing that if there is like a common cause and then like figure out what it's related to and how it's like similar and different. And so it's like pretty interesting the way that the DSM has evolved over time. And they do keep, they keep adding every time they like, I think the only thing that they've taken away is what like homosexuality hysteria. used to be. <laughs> yeah. Hysteria. Oh but like, you know, um, obviously that, those things are not <laughs> diagnosable disorders. Um, but that they crisscross is what you're saying. Because, like, you may have PTSD and then that leads to an anxiety disorder or... Right, exactly. Like, everything is, like, very intertwined and related. And so that's one of the issues with the DSM is that it it makes everything look, like, super um, clear-cut. And, for example, with a depression diagnosis, it's like you have to have five of these nine symptoms for at least two weeks or else it's not depression, it's like this other thing. And, you know, at the end of the day, if someone walks into the clinic and they're, they, if it looks like a duck, you know, if you're, if you look at them, you're like, this person's obviously struggling, it's been a while, then you're not going to hesitate to prescribe them the only thing that is known to have any effect against depression, which is, you know, or at least SSRIs. Um, selective serotonin Serotonin inhibitors. I'm still kind of stuck on a word you used a little bit earlier, Bria, which was aberrant human behavior. What qualifies as aberrant human behavior? Again, back to this question of normal and the self and... Totally. And I think that's a really good question. I have this, I have this debate with my mom a lot because um, both of my parents were famously my mental health disorders like they were just deniers of all of that like they were like Mm. bria truthers like you're fine you don't have any problems because i was so high achieving my mom was like i don't understand how like she still doesn't believe that i have adhd 
even though I took a full um, neuropsychiatric test that took six hours um, and involved giving me a test dose of Ritalin and measuring my head movements um, while I did like these like weird tests. Yeah, wow. it was strange. But she she was like, yeah, so you don't pay attention when you're bored. Like that was my, that's my main symptom. And mm. she's like, how is that not just a, a variant on normal? And I think the the issue is that like, like I strongly believe that I would never have been diagnosed with ADHD unless, and like I was put into a situation where it came to, where it became like my behavior became abnormal because I was suddenly no longer able to like pass exams because the material required me to like the norm was sitting in a lecture hall for four hours every single morning and getting Mm. like so much information and I just a different kind of focus yeah Mm -hmm. and I and I just couldn't do it but you know if I had decided to become an actress or even or like a reporter or something I don't think that it ever would have occurred to me that I had ADHD and so if a diagnosis only emerges when you pursue a certain career path like to what extent is that a valid diagnosis Mm -hmm. or to what extent is that aberrant behavior so I think it really illuminated things from my past that I hadn't really thought about so for example when I was in high school I would go to to school all day from like 7.30 in the morning till 3.30 p.m. And whenever I got back from school, and I would drink coffee in the morning, whenever I got home from school, I would try to stay up and like do my homework, but I just couldn't stay awake and I would crash. I mean, I would already be crashing, like falling asleep on the school bus on the way home. Um, and And so I would sleep from 4 p.m. until 8 p.m., wake up, do my homework, drink like a Diet Coke. Um, and then go back to sleep at three in the morning and sleep until seven. I know. So obviously me napping for four hours a day and then napping for four hours a day, like wasn't super healthy and was a result of that environment that I was in. But once I started taking like a very low dose of ADHD medication, like that habit like completely disappeared like the impulse and obviously it's like yes you're taking you know amphetamines why would you take a nap but Mm. I didn't I it was like the first taste that I'd ever gotten that like this is how normal people feel all the time like you know you don't have to like collapse in the middle of the day because I mean the way the neuropsychiatrist explained it to me was that like my brain was working extra hard and like running out of gas basically like Mm. earlier than everyone else's which is why I needed to take these like long periods to recharge to even be able to focus and do my homework Mm. um and so I was like running out of dopamine and running out of norepinephrine and these neurotransmitters that like well dopamine is that's just like the reward um that's the reward chemical and so um if you run out of dopamine, like everything becomes like totally uninteresting to you and you can't focus and you just want to go to sleep because you're so bored. Um, mm. And so I was running out of dopamine at like 1.15 p.m. 
um, as opposed to 9 p.m. And, mm. um, and, it, and, it, and it was awful. I mean, like, even, like, TV would be boring to me. Like, I couldn't sit through a movie. Um, and, I, and I think it started to get worse as I got older. And I started noticing it more, but just assumed that I was, like, depressed. Or I was like, oh, maybe this movie is just bad. <laughs> but I also, this brings me to another question I have for you, Bria, which is that you're studying to be a psychiatrist, which is uh, like a doctor. So you prescribe medication, right? And then there's therapists who are just, or not just, there are therapists who only do talk therapy and don't prescribe medication. I want to, again, I think this is a cultural thing. Um, like I've noticed in America, there's a, a much more immediate tendency to medicate, whether it's psychological or not. Like wisdom teeth, I had local anesthesia. Here, everybody just gets complete anesthesia. You know, <laughs> knock them out, knock them out. And my <laughs> and and that's something we often talk about with my family in France. Um, and so I'm kind of curious about. Why is that your path? Why do you find that that's something that is critical and is important? And and if you have thoughts about finding a balance and and experimentation within prescription and things like that. Yeah, so I, I originally wanted to be a psychologist um, because I did not want to go to medical school. And I just wanted to talk to people all day about their problems. Like that sounded like mm. a dream to me. Um, <laughs> And uh, my to be yeah, <laughs> but my parents were both doctors, and they were like, "You're gonna have." I mean, obviously, my parents wanted to mold me in their image, so of course they had their own vested interests in mm. my career. But also, I think that they were right in pointing out that I would have more flexibility um, as with a medical degree as a psychiatrist, um, and. Part of that flexibility is being able to prescribe medications. So like this issue of Americans' tendency to, let's just say, over-medicate, mm-hmm. I think is uh, in part a problem with like access to mental health care. Um, because basically, my impression of the system from my mm-hmm. somewhat limited experience is uh, like a medication management appointment takes like 15 minutes. And um, it's just really easy to slot patients into that. Whereas like a, an appointment for psychotherapy is a full hour. So already you're losing money just based off of sheer time. Um, wow. And, yeah. Wild. Yeah. Oh, just so you know, like everything that's wrong with the medical system, it is going to come back to capitalism and corporate Don't get greed. Me started on <laughs> no, but that that I yeah. realize now we have that was one of our biggest questions is like, to what degree does the pharmaceutical industry influence the diagnoses that are existing in the DSM, or like, are they funding any of that research that gets done? Is there an interest in pathologizing people more so that someone can make money off of that? Or like, is it a purely intellectual? And that we were saying like to get insurance, like you, your oh, therapist right. needs to send like a diet, you know, you have like a diagnosis code that like, you can't just like get therapy to get therapy. You need to get a diagnosis to like. If your insurance cover, is going to cover it. Cover it, yeah. Yeah. Right. And not, yeah, what were you saying, Ria? Well, I mean. <laughs> I feel, I don't know if this is more of a problem 
in psychiatry or less of a problem than it is like with the broader medical system? Because obviously the way that insurance companies interact with patients and doctors is extremely problematic and everybody is always so frustrated. I, I don't know if I can speak to the ways in which this is corrupt because I don't know yet. I have my, I have my suspicions, but as far as like with psychiatry, it's really difficult because we made some breakthroughs when with SSRIs, like when that when those came onto the market, like that was that was like the big break for psychiatry. And since then, not much like we've basically been tinkering with the same formula for SSRIs, SNRIs for decades mm. and um for some of these drugs like we still don't have a clear concept of how they work why they work and i mean drug companies will come up like they will come up with new formulations um of drugs and i'm sure they're making money that way but at the same time it's like anything to that's going to decrease side effects or make um, the drug even slightly better or more tolerable. Like psychiatry is going to welcome that because in all, there's only a handful of different classes of drugs and we kind of like need all the help that we can get. That being said, I think that psychotherapy is really underutilized um, not only because it doesn't pay as much, but it is difficult. It takes a lot of time, like to do cogn cognitive behavioral therapy, for example, which is really useful in treating depression and anxiety. Like that takes 10, 12 hour long sessions. And it is a lot easier to just hand a patient a prescription for Lexapro and, and say, you know, uh, let me know if, you know, you're, if you start having like stomach issues and you feel like you want to switch to a different drug. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And do you, is there any part of your training as a psychiatrist that is like, would you fulfill both functions? If a patient were interested, you say, you know, I can schedule an hour-long session with you and do this psychotherapy and give you this prescription? Is it like a hybridized thing or? Yeah. How much you have to spend, how much time do you have to spend with a patient before you can prescribe them something? That is another good question. I can only speak to, from my perspective as a patient, um, mm -hmm. that like usually it's like an, you do like an hour-long intake appointment and that's when either at that appointment or the next one you would start prescribing, depending on what the situation is. You know, if someone is like acutely ill, um, you're going to want to either start giving them, them right away. meds mm -hmm. or hospitalize them or whatever. Um, but I, I think that just because I like people so much, I aspire to be the kind of 
I'm afraid to even go on record saying this because like, you know, what's going to happen in 10 years when we link up and I, you, I'm, I'm completely sold out. And all I do is like give people it, hold pills. yourself accountable. All I did. Yeah. And, and like do ECT. So like, which, you know, actually works really well, but like, I want to be able to talk to people and have a connection with my patients. Um, so like I aspire to be the kind of psychiatrist who also does talk therapy. Um, because I've seen, I, I've seen one psychiatrist who did that, and I thought it was really helpful. Whereas, like my, my psychiatrist and my therapist were like, I don't know, it was like separation of church and state. And whenever I would get yeah. too much into like my, I'd be like, oh yeah, and like I guess I'm just like upset because this guy, like it really feels like I'm being pulled back into these old patterns. And my psychiatrist would be like, all right, enough of this. <laughs> like, interesting. whoa, interest. That's really interesting <laughs> to me. Yeah. Well, and I also was. I feel like is uh, in my mind, and maybe this is I just made this up. The path goes like from a psychologist up to a psychiatrist. So like, if you see someone who isn't, you know, licensed to prescribe medication, and they think oh, you know what? You might benefit from that. They refer you on to a psychiatrist. You know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. there is a world in which even, like, the best talk therapy in the world is not enough if you have a chemical imbalance. And then, so I always thought of those those things as being, like, connected in this pipeline of, like, integration, but it's interesting to hear you talk of them like church and state as if... I think that, but I think that relationship that you just outlined does exist where um, a psychologist or... Um, an LCSW at at a certain point they're they're going to be able to be like okay like I can't help you with just being able to speak with you and work on these strategies like you're going to need medication like that does exist but then the thing is like you also have to look at it in the real world where like I I know that like when insurance happens you know what I mean like there's insurance stuff where like I've had friends say well, you know, who have a therapist and a psychiatrist, and it's like, I'm not making enough money or my insurance, I've maxed out my number of therapy appointments. And then you're choosing between therapy and psychiatry. And obviously you're going to choose psychiatry because if you don't, if you stop your medications from one day to the next, you're going to have horrible side effects and untold drama. But it's also like they should go hand in hand, you know. So I don't know. I think that's kind of tough. Hopefully, Bria, you will be the solution. That's going to be like the root of a lot of these issues. And I think that having universal health care and decreasing a lot of these, a lot of the financial incentives, not just for the patient as someone who's pursuing care, but for the provider who is going to be reimbursed by an insurance company and then also partially by the patient and like all these other things, like super complicated system meant to just make you want to give up and lie down on the floor. Um, I think that that's going to make... If you if we simplify the system and take out those financial incentives, then it it allows people to do more of the holistic view of taking care of a patient, which is something that I think a lot of people in psychiatry actually care about. Like that's mm. why like the types of people who like to see the whole person who like believe in this like mind body connection. Those are the people who are most likely to go into psychiatry as as opposed to like vascular surgery yeah no that's a great point i'm trying to think if there's any last questions things that we had in our i have one thing i have to ask because this is because taking it back to the specifically like the dsm and the way we break down diagnoses i am fascinated by personality disorders me me too 
How often are we seeing those in people? How do we treat them? Are they things that if you observe that in a patient, do you name them to the person or are they seen as something that like that person isn't really going to be able to process that diagnosis? Like what is the function of those stratifications? I'm so fascinated by them. Yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, Personality disorders are a real bear um, in part because I think it's objectively kind of funny to say like, yeah, the issue is that your personality is um, wrong. <laughs> it kind of sucks. You are um, yeah, bad it's vibes. a crazy <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a yeah. crazy like title. Yeah, um, and it's also difficult because, like I was saying, the diagnostic um, and statistical manual is here for um, diagnosing, so you can treat. And personality disorders are notoriously very difficult to treat. So with something like let's take borderline personality disorder, for example. So borderline is a disorder that is characterized by um, really intense feelings of um, dissociation, like problems with identity, like someone with borderline doesn't have a solidified sense of self. Someone compared it to like picking up sand and then like letting like the self is the sand and then it just like runs through your fingers. So they might try on a lot of different personalities and because of this instability and in how they feel about themselves, it manifests as very unstable relationships with other people. Um, and then um, lots of feelings of like self-harm, suicidal ideation. And so just based off of that description, you can see how it would overlap with anxiety and depression, maybe PTSD um, from like, you know, traumatic events. Um, and so, but there's no, like the way to uh, treat borderline, you know, you can treat the underlying depression with medications and therapy. For a lot of disorders, not just borderline, there are like the disorder kind of prevents you from being able to get treatment like the like like aspects mm -hmm. of the disorder and so like one problem for people who might suffer from borderline is that they don't have very good insight into like what they're doing and you know they they tend to like misjudge situations and they might think that they're totally fine um and that they don't even need to go and be in therapy but the therapy is really the only effective treatment. Um, and so- The it, cognitive behavioral therapy that you talked about? It's actually a different type of therapy called DBT. Last question was, is the DSM considered to be a very good manual or is it considered to be Sorry, you sounded like Trump the way that you were. And I'm just gesticulating at the same time. Good <laughs> But like how much is it considered to be like this is the gold standard? So I think it, I think it's a gold standard, at least within the American medical system. Like we have to use that because it um <sighs> again with the insurance companies, like what you can only prescribe certain medications for people if they have a specific diagnosis. And then, I mean, there's like the ability to prescribe off label, which is to say like, not for its 
given medication not for its intended use. Um, but that's wild because you don't know how it works. Everything's yeah. interconnected. It's all very much, I mean, they say that like psychiatry is much more like an art than a science as compared mm. to like the rest of the other like specialties. And because there's just so much ambiguity and yeah, it's just difficult to say. I think that, I mean, the DSM, let's say it's fine, but I think that at least I, I know when I was in college as a psychology major, there was there was talk about moving to a more um, continuous model of categorizing uh, diagnoses, which is to say that using more like spectrum. spectrum. Yeah, instead exactly. Of, instead of boxes, yeah. And I was like, I was very hopeful at the time that that would be something that was more widely... Um, considered by the time that I got to medical school and residency and I think that that is yeah but you're a trailblazer doctor writer (laughs) I'm not gonna make make up a new manual that would take a long time no but you can encourage (laughs) people to you can encourage people to do it you know yes you're right I I I will um yeah I think I I do have I argue with people about diagnoses and like the DSM anyway, just because, you know, I'll be presenting a patient and say, this is what I think they have. And if the attending psychiatrist doesn't agree with me, then I'm going to um, defend myself mm. in order to protect my flagging ego. Mm. So. I love it. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Yeah, this has been a really interesting discussion. I feel like we kind of went all over the place in the best possible way. Um And yeah, I think what's sticking with me before we let you go, Bria, is what you were saying about it being an art. And I, and I love, I love that as artists, I feel like I see art everywhere and knowing that, that there's people out there who are going to be psychiatrists who are not like, let's dissect the brain but let's, (laughs) you know, make this an art is really kind of a comforting and beautiful way to to think about it that humans can be art instead of just like puzzle pieces to be fixed i love that mm-hmm. well put yeah yeah all right thanks for coming on bria thanks for having yes. me we were this chit-chatting so fun. forever thank, oh my yeah. god yeah, thank you for sharing your so story fun. with us too it's a great to have like the the example of what your own journey with mental health yes. has been at, from both perspectives it's like studying it practicing it and receiving treatment and yeah thank you guys oh my god what an interview interview. my brain is like i think that's a sign of a good of a good interview is when you leave with more questions than when you first started you know i immediately what my first thought is that like we're gonna have to return to this topic i want to talk to more people about this i and not to say anything of bria she's fantastic i feel like i wasn't prepared enough to have the conversation in the smartest most thoughtful way like when she was like have you guys looked at the dsm and we were like no in fact we have not so i would love i would love to like especially because that sort of more scientific angle from this podcast is it's harder in my mind to find those topics. Like I would love to return to the world of psychiatry and psychology and bring in people who practice 
or talk to a psychologist about talk therapy and how and like that is she made it clear to me that that is a distinct topic in a way that I yeah. guess I wasn't realizing but that there is it's it's interesting this this thing that Bria was talking about a spectrum of diagnosis versus like categories and boxes and wanting to find a way that's a spectrum and I think that that's something that I'm going to be really thinking about moving forward in all our other topics yeah. is is this a spectrum? I think maybe like astrology has the possibility to be a spectrum, you know, the way that like you have your sign, but then you've got your moon sign and you're rising, like that you're not just one thing, you kind of flow on a spectrum versus what are the personality tests where you're like this or not this, you know, Myers-Briggs, like, yes, you're a specific thing, but it'll give you percentages how close or how far you are. For example, I'm drinking out of my Hufflepuff mug. Yes. I'm not a Hufflepuff, but this mug is in my cupboard. And those yeah. are only four boxes. That's too, too, few, too few boxes. Four? Yeah, you can't minor and Slytherin. You know what I mean? Like, you <sighs> have to... <laughs> I would, though. Yeah. If I'm not yeah, majoring in Slytherin, I'd minor in it. For yeah. sure. I feel like I probably would, too. And I appreciated what she said about, like... Um, oh, you know, you have your personality, and then you have these conditions that you may or may not have kind of layered on top of that. And I was like, oh, that's so interesting. It teed us up well for our next couple guests, I think, because it does make you want to go, yeah, what is just like my baseline personality? And then therefore, you know, what does anxiety look like on top of that? Or Mm -hmm. I'm like about to ask, are we drinking the Kool-Aid? But I know what kind of question is that? Are we drinking? You know, yeah, I think I think we should say for the record that both of us see therapists and we're mm-hmm. very pro mental health but I don't see a psychiatrist I've never been medicated me neither I say I'm drinking the Kool-Aid overall I think I'm definitely drinking I'm the drinking Bria's Kool-Aid of, yeah psychiatry is an art and wanting to like talk to people and hear people out while also using medication as an additional tool to help them if need be yeah but that 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 it's about helping people i'm i'm always drinking the help people kool-aid yes and then with a specific topic of the dsm which may or may not really have ended up being the topic of our conversation uh i would say i definitely need more information i appreciate that it is the measuring stick that we have and that probably a lot of people have worked really hard to create that body of knowledge and i'm sipping cautiously because i still feel like that will have to evolve and like you said her comment about spectrums and yeah i i think so too so yeah that's our very ignorant opinion for you here today yes and very scientific episode so thanks for sticking with us and see you on the next one This has been another episode of Drinking the Kool-Aid with Lila and Naima. Thanks for tuning in. Our music is made by Sammy Miller and Molly Miller. Our artwork is by the wonderful Charlotte Beach. Editing done by Lila and Naima. Sorry. We hope you'll join us again next time for another episode of Drinking the Kool-Aid with Naima and Lila. Feel free to leave a comment and let us know if you're drinking the Kool-Aid. 